Please rise to hear the reading of God's word. God himself is speaking to us. Let us give heed to the God and creator of the universe who has revealed his will to us in his word. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal you may be seated let us pray Dear God and Heavenly Father, as we come to you and come before you, 
to look at your word and to hear your will and your revelation for our lives. It is our prayer that your spirit may take these words from your word and give to us not only an understanding in the truth, but a humble brokenness before you in which we realize that we need your grace, your spirit's working, your power, your guidance, your enabling in our lives for each and everything before us. And that in so doing that you may give us your grace and give us also a humble trust in you, dependence upon you, and entrusting our very selves and our lives to you to work out that which is good and to your glory. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. When I was a young minister, I can say that I truly did trust in the Lord God to take care of me and guide me and work in the ministry. But, but I will say that there was in me somewhat of a, a view that because I was a child of God and, and he was caring for me, nothing really too bad could happen to me. When I was in a small church and pastoring that church, one of the two ruling elders on the session stepped down for reasons of difficulty in his family, and the one remaining elder managed to get his son on the session, which created a situation that actually turned out to be not good at all. And he then proceeded to run the session and the church really as a dictatorship and began to do things that I could not in good conscience agree with. And so I did the only thing that I could really think that was proper to do. I could not stay there, so I resigned. I stepped down. I left the church. And I did trust in the Lord to take care of me, but that very week that I stepped down, my family, I and my family moved into our very first house, (laughs) and I acquired a mortgage. And the very next week, my second child was born. (laughs) And so I had a mortgage, I had two children, and I had no income. And I will say that I, I was very, very discouraged. And I didn't really know what to do or how to do it. I had to trust in the Lord, but I had to learn to trust in the Lord when I could not also at the same time trust in myself to supply the answer. But God knew what he was doing. And God had begun lessons in suffering that I needed to learn to teach me how to truly, really trust in him. And this morning, I'd like to speak about suffering And I've grouped suffering into three broad categories. And these categories aren't necessarily something infallible. They are just general ways of grouping suffering and looking at them. And I'd like to also speak about God's three purposes. Three purposes that are stated in Scripture that God has for suffering in our lives. And I will just summarize 
that at the beginning here, the three categories of suffering that we will look at are calamities, afflictions, and persecution. And God's three purposes of suffering in our lives are one, to cause us to look to God and not to this world as the source of our peace and blessing in our lives. Secondly, to purify us from sin, more and more to purify us from sin. And thirdly, to use the suffering in our lives to draw others to Jesus Christ. The first category is calamities. By calamities, I refer to major world events that, in general, we have little or no control over at all, but are often very affected by them. I am referring to such things as wars, economic collapse, or governmental collapse, epidemics, famines, hurricanes, tornadoes, and earthquakes. Jesus himself referred to such events in his Olivet Discourse, In Matthew 24, 6 through 8, he said, You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. We say, wait a minute, that's cause for alarm. He says, see that you are not alarmed despite these calamities, because these things must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of birth pains. Notice that Jesus says that these things are not signs that he is soon coming back. Don't we often hear that? Well, things are getting really bad. The Lord must be right around the corner. He's coming back real soon. Jesus says these are not signs that he's coming back. Such calamities are to be expected throughout the entire history of the world from the first coming to the second coming of Christ. The foolishness and sinfulness of people are responsible for many of these calamities. And often it's not even a large number of people. The president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, pretty much single-handedly started a war with Ukraine a year ago And large numbers of cities and towns have been reduced to rubble. Tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people, have lost their homes, lost their jobs, lost their livelihoods. Even thousands and tens of thousands of civilians have lost their lives. And hundreds of thousands of soldiers have lost their lives as a result In addition, in some countries in the world, there is such bitterness and such such hatred between the different people groups in the nations that they are unable to maintain a working government with the result that there is great economic poverty and hardship. We may have never experienced any of these things, but they are very real and they are going on around the world and they are very difficult for those who go through them. All such suffering is the result of the fall of mankind into sin. We must remember that the world cannot be made into a perfect world without the hearts of mankind being radically transformed by the only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. The great peace and economic prosperity that we in America enjoy is really the result of the great influence of the gospel in this nation, which created a kindness and a respect for all the peoples of our nation. 
But as more and more people have come to hate Christ and to hate Christianity, they have come to hate those who disagree with them. And tragically, some Christians have hated them back. Tragedies such as epidemics, famines, hurricanes, tornadoes, and earthquakes are not the result of human evil, but they too are a consequence of the fall. God cursed creation as a result of the fall, and he did it in order to limit the ability of wicked men to do evil. Thorns and thistles are a result of God's curse upon the earth. Nature has become stingy as a result of the curse. It does not give up its products easily. We have to get out there and weed, and we have to work hard to produce the crops and the food. People are forced to work hard to make enough to survive. And we, even in our day, with so much to make our lives easy, are finding inflation and rampant government spending uh, causing the money we have to buy less and less and less for us and more hours and more work needed just to provide for the needs of our families. And all of this is in God's purpose. He has cursed the earth so that man doesn't have an abundance of time to do evil. And man must also be forced to realize that this world is not the promise of blessing for him. It is not what God intends for us to have. These tragedies come upon both Christians and non-Christians in the world. And God allows them for this purpose that God can pry our fingers off of our grasp upon the things of this world that God can cause us to stop trusting in this world and what is in it to make us happy and full, and rather to learn to trust in Jesus Christ alone to bring us the true treasures in our relationship with him now and in our glorious fellowship that he has promised to us in heaven. Jesus says to us in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. You think you're going to make yourself happy by storing up all these treasures on earth? He says, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You can't guarantee your happiness through them. You're going to over and over again be disappointed. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. God keeps those treasures safe for you. And Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Holy Spirit says to us in Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And God says to us in Hebrews 10, 34, for you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. This indicates that the early Christians who were persecuted for their faith and who were imprisoned and who were robbed, they understood that that in having their 
their earthly possessions confiscated and robbed and taken by governmental authorities and, and stolen by people, they realized they did not lose their true treasures. Their true treasures were safe in God's hands. And he, and he says it was joyful to them to be identified with Christ. The very fact that they were persecuted and lost what they had on earth showed that they possessed eternal treasure with Christ forever. And they could even be joyful about losing their earthly treasures. The second category of sufferings in this life is afflictions. These two happen to Christians and non-Christians. And may involve sin or God's curse on the world. But they are personal events. Not worldwide events, but things that just happen to us. (laughs) Or an individual event. We may lose our job. And perhaps we lose it because the business goes out of business. Or, Or perhaps we lose it because we were lazy. We may get fined. Maybe because we cheated on our taxes. Or we may lose a loved one to cancer, which is incredibly difficult. Or break our leg and be laid up for weeks. And maybe if we're in school, we say, well, this isn't such a bad thing. I don't have to go to school for weeks. It's, it's great. But, you know, if we have a job and we have to go to work and we can't work, it may be a very bad thing. As Christians, we might understand why we got in trouble for doing something wrong, but yet we might still be bitter about it. And we might have a hard time understanding why we as believers have to suffer from sickness and from accidents. After all, isn't God the God of the universe? Can't he keep us from getting sick and from having accidents? But God tells us that he allows such things to come into our lives because he has good purposes in them. And he's going to use them for good in ways that perhaps we don't at this time understand. The Apostle Peter has a lot to say about this. The Holy Spirit speaking through Peter says to us in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, You rejoice in this, that is to say you rejoice in the wonderful salvation that Jesus Christ has provided to you. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. God says sometimes it's necessary for you to suffer grief in various trials for God to accomplish his good purposes in your life. So that the proven character of your faith, your faith which is more valuable than gold, gold which though it is perishable, is refined by fire, so that the proven character of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God uses our affliction to purify our thoughts, our words, our deeds, so that our lives may become like pure gold in his sight, and so that our lives may bring praise and glory and honor both to Jesus Christ our Savior and to us when Christ returns for us. God has a good purpose in our afflictions. He is using them to purify us of sin. And in 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2, God's Spirit says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, because he suffered, 
and you know that, and you know he suffered for you, arm yourselves also with the same understanding that you are ready and willing to suffer in the flesh because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. Now, this doesn't mean that, that, that those who suffer stop sinning. No, we will always have sin in our lives until that day Christ comes back for us and glorifies us in body and soul. But he says, you know what? When, when, when we experience the hardships that come to us from our sins and our sin gets us in terrible trouble and causes great grief and hardship between us and other people, uh, that suffering has a way of getting us to say, you know what? I'm done with this sin. I, I'm done with this pornography. I'm done with this cheating. I'm done with this lying. I, I'm done with this I, I'm finished with it, and by God's grace, I'm determining I'm not going to do it anymore. With God's help and God's mercy, I'm going to start walking in holiness in every area of my life. God uses suffering. He uses affliction to teach us that lesson, and we need to have that lesson. The verse goes on to say, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, that is, in your physical body, no longer for human desires for sinful human desires, but for God's will, for God's will. Peter is not saying that believers ever live sinlessly perfect lives on earth, but that the heartache, pain, loss, and even great embarrassment that often comes from our sins can have the effect of creating a determination in us to stop playing with the fire of sin because we have experienced the pain of being burned by it. The last four years, our presbytery went through a very difficult time. There were multiple sets of charges filed and multiple accusations of sin made. The presbytery divided itself very evenly right down the middle into two sides, each of which was very certain that it was the other side that was supporting sinful behavior. It took the presbyters a long time to realize that all the arguments that they could muster were not going to convince the other side that they were wrong and that this side was right. And it took the presbyters a a very long time to realize that their harsh and critical words towards their brothers and sisters were not making the situation any better, but only worse. Now, we might think that ministers and ruling elders would be far less likely to speak evil of others, but I think that our great knowledge of the scriptures gives us an overconfidence in our ability to always figure out what is good and what is bad in every situation. And sometimes it's just not that simple. And when the end of the conflict finally came, And it did, praise God, come. The two sides never agreed on who was right and who was wrong. But all the people on each side were willing to admit that they had spoken sinfully. They had spoken sinfully and they saw it now. And they had learned to begin speaking kind and considerate words to all those on both sides 
of the issues. Trials and afflictions have a way of purifying us. As hard as they are, they're a good thing. The third category of sufferings in this life is persecution for the Christian faith. Jesus tells us that this too will occur throughout the entire history of the world until he comes again. He says in Matthew 24, 9 through 14, Then they will hand you over to be persecuted and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply. Because you see people all around you doing what is wrong and sinful and illegal and nothing being done about it because lawlessness will multiply the love of many will grow cold the fact that there's so much sin can cause people's love and dedication to the lord to grow cold but the one who endures to the end that is the person who will be saved who endures faithfully in Christ. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus tells us that persecution will produce or lead to several other evils, including professing Christians denying the faith, including betrayal, hatred, false prophets, deception, lawlessness, and apathy towards the gospel of Christ. When a Christian denies the faith, it can be devastating to those around him. But Jesus has told us ahead of time to expect such things. Jesus warns not just us about that person, but he warns every one of us that it is easy for each of us, every one of us, to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are Christians because we attend church regularly and because we are working to advance Christianity when in fact we might very well not understand the gospel and we may never have truly surrendered our hearts and our lives regardless what comes to us to the Lord Jesus. You see, coming to Christ is not, Lord, if everything goes well for me, I will worship you and serve you. No, coming to Christ is saying, Lord, you are my Lord and my God, and everything I have, though it all be taken away from me, I will serve you and love you, even as Job did. That's true faith in Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter discusses the godly attitudes and actions that the Holy Spirit produces in the lives of all true believers, the way he creates his fruit, his righteousness in the lives of every believer. And then verses 9 and 10 say, the person who lacks these things, you look at the person's life and there is no fruit. There is no patience, kindness, peace, love, joy, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's not there. You don't see it. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Because if you do these things, you will never stumble. There's a warning here for each of us to be sure we are in the faith. That is vital. Jesus 
does not allow persecution and apostasy to destroy the faith of his elect. Rather, he allows it and he allows all suffering to take place so that we may learn how to truly trust in him and depend upon him in every situation. And the end goal of this is to also bring about faith in the lives of those others who are around us. God says in 1 Peter 2.23, when Jesus was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Wow, that's hard. We might say, well, that's Jesus. We can't do that. 1 Corinthians 4, 12 and 13 tells tells us that the Holy Spirit enabled the Apostle Paul to respond to suffering the same way that Jesus responded to evil. Paul stated, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Why? To show the love of Christ. To show the transforming power of Christ within us. That is why we as Christians need to learn to respond to evil with love. With care for the person who is on a self-destructive lifestyle. To respond not with evil, not to treat evil with evil, but to respond with Christ's love that they may see that truly the power in us to do that doesn't come from us. It comes from Christ. God's will is for us to learn to respond to persecution and to all kinds of suffering in the manner that our Savior did. And in doing so, we give a powerful witness to a world that is blind to the spiritual power of God that is working all around them and they cannot see it. When my wife died of cancer and I continued to minister in the church and to raise my children, a couple came to me and they said, "Uh, we don't understand. How can you do this? How are you able to handle this, to to, to deal with the loss of your wife and continue ministering and to, to continue raising your children by yourself? How can you do this? How can you handle this? And I answered, I can't handle it. I can't do this on my own. Every day I drop balls and things get missed. And every day I mess things up. I can't handle it. But I have the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is my savior. And he dwells with me and I am trusting in him. And he is working out everything in my life for his glory. And our blessing. And I can trust him to do what he wants to do. Please look with me at your Bibles. at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. God says 
through the Apostle Paul in verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. God tells us here that he created, when he created the world, he caused physical light to shine. Total darkness. And all of a sudden, physical light shone and dispelled the darkness in the world that he created. And God goes on to tell us that he is causing a new light to shine. And he is doing this to create a new world, a new creation. And this light is not a physical light, but a spiritual light. It is the light of understanding that God shines in our hearts by his presence in our hearts. The Holy Spirit supernaturally illumines us to understand the gospel, which shows us the glory of God through the God-man Jesus Christ, and which enables us to know God and fellowship with God. God is creating a new creation, and isn't it amazing? When he created the first creation, he began by creating the home for his people, and then he created his people to live in that home. As he's making the new creation, he begins by creating the people who will dwell in the home, and when Christ returns, he will create the new heavens and the new earth, the home in which his people will dwell in forever. Verse 7 says that this glorious treasure of the glorious divine person, the Holy Spirit, this priceless presence of God, is now dwelling in common, weak, fragile clay jars, namely our human bodies and souls. The glory of the infinite, uncontainable God is dwelling in these weak, fragile human bodies and souls. And God has done this so that it may be shown that the extraordinary power that is at work in us is not from us, but is from God. Paul goes on in verses 8 and 9 to explain how the pressures on him and those ministering with him were enough to crush them and destroy them and cause them to quit ministry and to leave it and get out. And yet he says, they are perplexed, but they are not crushed. They are not destroyed. Though they were afflicted in every way and perplexed, they were never crushed. And it was because of the power of the eternal life of Jesus that was at work in their souls. In verse 10, Paul goes on to say that our physical bodies are growing weaker and more infirm every day. Now, the young people may not see that, but some of us who are older, yeah, we begin collecting aches and pains and and health problems, and we go to doctors to deal with them and get rid of them, and some of them we can't get rid of, and they just try to keep them from getting worse, and we realize that our bodies are on a path of decay towards death. 
But even as our bodies are wearing out and decaying and headed ultimately into the grave, even as that happens more and more every day, Paul says in verse 16 that every day, day by day, our spirits are being renewed, they're being refreshed, they're made being made more pure, more holy, more glorious, more pleasing to God, that they may be more and more prepared to dwell in the internal presence of God forever. How wonderful the work God is supernaturally doing within us. Finally, in verse 17, Paul refers to every affliction in the believer's life you can sit down and list them all on the page. Every, every difficulty and hardship you've had this past week, this past month, this past year, your whole life, every one of them. How does Paul refer to all the hardships and afflictions that you've had? How about all the hardships and afflictions that each believer in Ukraine has suffered? And then he says, he refers to them as our momentary light affliction. He gathers up all of our life and all the pain and suffering in his life and says it's a momentary light affliction in light of eternity. And he says then that all our sufferings are producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. For this, your suffering for Christ, you get this. Eternal glory with God. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to join with the Apostle Paul in confessing. So we do not focus. We need to confess these words to God. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we give praise and glory to you that you are our Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior and our keeper and protector and our guide and our hope of eternal life. And we rejoice, dear Lord, that we can know that all things that happen in our lives, in the lives of your people, you are working for good. Good not only for us, for our sanctification and for our hope and our dependence upon you, but good even for those around us that they too may see your glory, may see that which is invisible and know your glorious presence and working and be drawn to Christ. And this truly is our prayer, that you would be pleased to work this work in us and use it in others for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.